On this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, the Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies team discusses the latest news and information. We talk about recent experiences in the industry and in our focus segment, discuss the challenges in keeping up with the latest regulatory changes in our industry. We would like to thank our sponsors, Surgical Information Systems, providing cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers, and Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, the nation's leading regulatory compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about our sponsors, visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. Welcome to Episode 135 of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey for July 6, 2021, recording from our studios in Spencerport, New York. This is Susan Cronkite, Chief Researcher for the ASC Podcast with John Gailey and Senior Nurse Consultant for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. Joining me is John Gailey, the owner of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies and recognized as one of the nation's leading experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. Mr. Gailey is the author of over 10 books on the ASC industry and a frequent industry speaker on regulatory accreditation and finance issues. And also here with us in our studio are Alex Borneman, um, Director of Operations, Laura Plummer, Consultant with AHS, Judy D'Ambrosio, our Director of Education, and senior consultant, and Amy Durbano, a consultant with AHS. And joining us remotely from Cape Cod is Lori Rodericks, our Director of Clinical Operations. So this has been painful. I know. <laughs> we have a brand new board and a totally incompetent sound engineer, and that would be me, um, who didn't know that there's a mute button on our brand new board. <laughs> Tried every, changed every microphone, every, every cord, cable. and then yeah. went, oh, it's muted. It's just muted. So <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. yeah, we have a lot of fun here in this uh, in this uh, place. I, I, You know, so we're... Um, we have a, one of those days when as many people as possible are in Rochester, New York, get together, and uh, we're here in the studio. We thought we would uh, – Sue and I were going to record an episode today anyway, and we thought, let's be lazy and let's get some help. Um, so and there's so much to talk about. There's actually a lot of news going on, and I just kind of want to give an update on what's going on uh, with some surveys and some activities also. And then um, in our middle segment, we're going to spend some time talking about the challenges that our clients and and sure all of our listeners have in trying to keep up with all the regulatory changes. And so we got a phone call this week from uh, Marcy Sasso, who's uh, doing a uh, special day of education featuring OSHA's new guidelines. So mm -hmm. she asked me to uh, put a plug in for that. So we'll talk about it a little bit later. But it is going to be July 14th, 2021 from 930 to 330. So that's six hours of listening to OSHA talk about what's going on. And I'm mm -hmm. sure that will. Well, there's a lot of stuff to, there is. to learn about that's it. So right. I'm, I'm actually looking forward to that. And it's a free event too. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, we'll have a link to it on our uh, website. And, and again, we'll mention it again in our third segment. So let's kind of give an update on what's going on in the news. The Provider Relief Fund reporting period opens on July 1st. So on July 1st, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services opened the reporting portal for all healthcare providers, including ASCs, that received Provider Relief Fund grants exceeding $10,000 in the aggregate. These grants were administered by the Department of Health and Human Services through the Human Health Resources and Services Administration. Alex, you are a resident expert on the Provider Relief Fund. Do you want to kind of give an update on uh, on what the what this means? Sure. So this is the first reporting period now, well, July 1st to the end of September um, is the first reporting period for the PRF reporting, and that is for the first period of receipts from the PRF fund. So the these would be the, the people that, fund. Right, that, that received the funding in 2020, right? Correct, in the beginning of 2020. 2020, up through what time? This is for the first period of reporting, which is for anybody who received payments from April 10th, 2020 to June 30th, 2020. And if they received it after, uh, in other words, starting in July 1st, 2020 through now, they're going to be reporting that in 2022, correct? Well, there's actually three oh, additional no. <laughs> reporting periods. Uh, and the, the fourth period ends March 31st, 2023. 
So we're going to be doing this for quite some time. So let's just deal with the first period right now, which is <laughs> which is for anybody that received it through June 30th, 2020. And again, the, the end of that reporting period is September 30th. Now, Alex, you've been uh, keeping a very close eye on this reporting. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what they're going to have to report? Yeah, so you're going to have to report on any of the expenses that are attributable to COVID that you use the money on or any lost revenue um, during that period that you're using the money for. And and that's going to be true for all of the reporting periods, but this is going to be our first go at it. The Department of Health and Human Services has released an example form for helping you to report, which is great because I created one too, and now mine is totally debunked. <laughs> um, and I'll have to revise that um, for the third time probably. But there's also a training program this Thursday, that's uh, July 8th, 2021. Um, there's a, a training program that they're giving to anybody that signs up, really. And hopefully that'll help answer a lot of people's questions. I know I'll be looking forward to it. So we'll put some links to those uh, to that form and to the training program registration in our uh, podcast notes here, uh, assuming that we can get this podcast out before Thursday, of course. <laughs> And I'm sure the they'll be recording too if it's, right. if you if you catch this after. And then on July 1st, uh, 2021, Department of Health and Human Services announced a new rule to protect consumers from the surprise medical bills. We've actually mentioned this a few times in the past, but now um, the, it is becoming imminent. Uh, the announcement, which we'll link in the show notes, stated that the Department of Health and Human Services, Labor and Treasury, and the Office of Personnel Management issued. The uh, requirements related to surprise billing, part one, which is an interim final rule that will restrict excessive out-of-pocket costs to consumers from surprise billing and balance billing. The surprise billing happens when people unknowingly get care from providers that are outside of the health plan's network and can happen for both emergency and non-emergency care. Of course, we're more concerned about the non-emergency care in the ASC. Mm -hmm. uh, balance billing is when a provider charges a patient the remainder of what their insurance does not pay. And it is currently prohibited uh, for both, you know, the federal Medicare and the state Medicaid programs. This rule will extend similar protections to Americans that are insured through their employer-sponsored uh, or other health, uh, commercial health plans. So here are a couple of the key provisions of this. It does ban high out-of-network cost sharing for uh, non-emergency services. Patient cost sharing such as coinsurance or deductible cannot be higher than than if such services were provided by an in-network doctor, and any coinsurance or deductible must be based on in-network provider rates. This new rule also bans out-of-network charges for ancillary care, such as an anesthesiologist or assistant surgeon at an in-network uh, facility in all circumstances. So uh, you literally cannot, this is going to be probably the most important thing for us in the surgery center industry, is that the anesthesiologists are going to have to be in network or they will not be able to bill uh, out of network if the surgery center is in network. And it bans other out-of-network charges without advance notice. So healthcare providers and facilities must provide patients with a plain language consumer notice explaining that patient consent is required to receive care at an out-of-network basis before that provider can bill at the higher out-of-network rate. So these regulations will take effect for healthcare providers and facilities on January 1st, 2022. Uh, much more information to come. I'm sure we're going to get a lot more guidance as this gets closer, and I'll provide a link to the information in the show notes. So let's talk a little bit about some of the recent experiences that we've had. Let me just mention some of the things that have been popping up during uh, some of our surveys. Peer review of allied health professionals has become an issue. Laura, you and I uh, do surveys, and uh, we know that peer review is becoming a really hot topic. It has been a hot topic, but even more so uh, recently during surveys. And uh, something that's been popping up lately is making sure that there is some form of peer review for any of the allied health providers. That would be, you know, like uh, physician's assistants, uh, CRNAs, et cetera. What are your thoughts, Lori? No, that, that's true. And it needs, you know, when you think about doing the peer review, make sure that it's specific to the role that that uh, provider plays. Um, <clears throat> so you can't use your generic physician or anesthesia, um, anesthesiologist um, peer review form. You should make it specific to that, um, to that title. Right. Um, and also remember that the peer review is just that it should be done by a peer. Right. Um, it obviously can be done by someone above them, as in a physician, anesthesiologist. But you wouldn't have your um, 
surgical tech um, doing peer review on the, the physician's uh, PA yeah. or CRNFA. You know, you can maybe if you're doing some sort of a chart review or something, but not on their practices. Right. That has to be someone of equal or higher authority. Right. And the best example probably is a physician's assistant, for example, can't be doing a peer review of the physician that they, well, can't be doing a, a peer review of a physician in general. Uh, same thing with residents and fellows. We've seen that sometimes in the past where, um, you know, that's inappropriate. It's got to be down level, not up level. Uh, peer review in general has uh, become a, a big issue, Lori, as you mentioned. During one of our surveys, we had a great suggestion from one of the surveyors that didn't, it won't pop up as a, uh, as a citation yet, uh, but they suggested that for each of the specialties, the peer review uh, should, should have some elements that are specific to that specialty. Um, for example, if you're doing OBGYN, perforations would be one of those types of issues. If you're doing uh, NGI procedures, of course. Uh, if you're doing eye cases, the, the frequency of um, anterior vitrectomies, unplanned but anterior vitrectomies. Now, I, I mean, the challenge that I have with this uh, comment is it's hard enough to get people to do peer review in the first place, let alone getting more specific. But I think uh, as we ramp up our requirements here and keep a much closer eye on those organizations that are being surveyed uh, as to what they're doing on peer review, you're going to find that uh, these are not going to get simpler. It's going to be much more complex as time goes on. Yeah, no, I, I thought that was a really great um, suggestion or recommendation by the surveyor, but um, the, I think the challenge is going to be uh, to the creator of that peer review form and not the person performing the peer review, because um, whoever is performing the peer review is answering the questions. It's coming up with those questions that are specialty specific that may be a little more challenging to the average person. So right. get your providers involved and get their input when it comes to creating specialty-specific um, questions. Now, Alex, another area that's been challenging on surveys lately has been life safety. Uh, you and I just attended a, a revisit for a life safety survey. Um, now, life safety surveys in general are, are much more difficult now, I, I would say, and they have been for years. But um, I think our, our challenge, especially when we're taking on newer clients, is helping them to get all of that information that they should have kept all along and then keep it up to date because those surveyors are looking at every single piece of information that uh, that you have there. What are your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. And life, life safety is, the, the the issue with life safety, of course, is that it's unique for every, every center. Every facility is different. You know, some have generators, some have UPS systems. Um, you know, depending on the types of uh, services you provide, you have different types of med gas, different vacuum systems, things like that. So every center is different, so there's no one-size-fits-all solution to life safety. And frankly, you know, there's tons of codes. Yeah. There's so many requirements, and ultimately a lot of it comes down to the manufacturer's instructions right. as well. So there's a ton to keep it, keep track of. I, I think the most important thing, is to develop a system for your center, maintain it, and keep up with it. And when issues arise, keep adding to it, you know, constantly just improving it. Yeah, and to that end, we got another request. These are always so frustrating. Another request from our client who just said, just give me a list of all the things that I need to uh, uh, to do every month. And uh, those questions are always so frustrating. I, I finally wrote them back and I said, here is a brief list of what, uh, what it is today. But I mean, first of all, things change constantly. Second is everything, as you just said, uh, is dependent upon the condition, or, uh, upon the manufacturer's instructions. So one generator might have one requirement, another generator have another one. Um, you know, Lori, you know, we all know that the uh, IFUs for um, the uh, diagnostic testing that we do prior to surgery, you know, would be dependent upon the particular product that you're using. Um, so, you know, those are all things that uh, vary depending upon who the client is. Um, and, you know, you really have to stay on top of it. You really have to have a good administrator and nurse manager. We're going to talk about in our second segment here, you know, what it takes to stay on top of everything. I think that's a very timely issue right now. Um, but, I, you know, I think that uh, a lot of owners think that, oh, 
you know, the job of an administrator and a nurse manager, it's all paperwork. So let's just give me a list of all the paper that I have to generate. Mm -hmm. And it's not that at all. A couple other things that have popped up. Uh, first of all, we've had uh, some real kudos in uh, surveys lately. Uh, and I, I'd want to mention those because I think these are things that surveyors, you know, that kind of a suggestion that we give to uh, organizations to be prepared for a survey is mm -hmm. that all of our clients have uh, PDFs of their policy and procedure manual. So what we've been doing lately is providing a um, – uh, we've been providing a uh, PDF on a flash drive that we give to the surveyor so that they can take it back to their hotel afterwards or at least be able to use a, uh, a search function to be able to find uh, particular policies that, um, that are included in their checklist. So uh, nothing that they like. I, you know, Sue, well, all of us, I, I'd love to hear everybody else's comments on this, is that uh, our minutes are very long, aren't they? Mm -hmm. Especially the quality mm -hmm. improvement well, we attach yeah. things and, you know, just they have to really show the discussion and the process that, that you've gone through. Right. And, and I think that, you know, when a surveyor sees the, uh, uh, the, the, the depth that we have with all of our quality improvement minutes, um, they don't, well, first of all, they don't have the time to be able to read them in depth. Uh, so that there is that. Baffle um, them. That baffle them with, well, you know what I mean. <laughs> I won't say it. Uh, but, uh, and it's not true, really. No, no. I mean, it's a lot we of good a lot of good, you know, gathering the information and then, you know, you present it in an understandable way and right. then summarize it so that, it, you know, you show what you're doing with it. And, and have it very logically organized mm -hmm. with conclusions. Don't forget to close a the loop there. Mm -hmm. uh, but demonstrate that in all of your minutes and you're going to get through those things uh, very quickly. Uh, I think we, we've all commented that sometimes it's anticlimactic because they, we will find that uh, they look at the minutes and then they just kind of say, okay, you got it. I don't need to look at it mm -hmm. any further. And we kind of want them to keep spending a lot more time looking at it. Yeah. and giving us kudos for all the hard work we put into it. But let me show you what's in here. <laughs> That's right. But it's a good thing when they when they believe in the quality enough that they don't feel they have to dig too much. Right, right. So uh, more is better, certainly, when it comes to quality improvement. Another thing that came up, and uh, we weren't cited for it, but they were reminding us that uh, don't forget about making sure that uh, malignant hypothermia has to be trained. In other words, you have upon orientation of new employees, you need to do malignant hypothermia training upon hire. If you have an MH cart and you're uh, um, um, and and you have any of the products that could uh, induce an MH crisis, it's imperative that all your staff are aware. And so when you get a new employee on board, they need to be trained during that orientation process because. You can't wait till there is a crisis or for the following year when you do your annual review. So it's, right. it's um, kind of like mandated. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing too, John, whether they pointed it out, and, and they may not have just because obviously this center had MH um, triggering agents. If you're a center and you've decided to change specialties, add specialties, et cetera, and you're going to introduce any triggering agents for malignant hypothermia, they the expectation is that you will have a drill mm -hmm. and training prior to bringing that triggering agent into your facility. Right. So that's something else to consider. Don't wait till after it's there. Make sure you can show documentation that you did that drill prior to bringing it on site. Right. Yeah. Very good point. Um, and another thing that uh, came up, this was actually one of my favorite uh, recommendations that came out from a uh, surveyor, never heard this before, is uh, suggesting that uh, you do a uh, scavenger hunt with the crash cart. And what this surveyor recommended is that you uh, create a checklist like about 10 items that would be found in a crash cart. And you make every person who might be responsible for responding with a crash cart go through that checklist and, and as quickly as possible pull out all those items that are on that scavenger hunt list. Mm -hmm. And then you have a stopwatch and you time it. And uh, her point was that when she had done it with her uh, particular facility, that it became a very competitive thing. People are, you know, by nature competitive. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and I think she mentioned the first time somebody ran through it, it took them three and a half minutes. And then the second, uh, and by the time they went through all these iterations, um, they got it down to less than 20 seconds. Mm -hmm. But the, the real important takeaway is that it wasn't just a matter of finding it. 
But the the uh, nurses, you know, said, wait a minute, this is not logical, the way these things are organized in the drawers. Mm-hmm. So, you know, not only were they uh, learning to find these things, uh, learning um, what items would be in a crash mm-hmm. cart, but also found a better way to organize it so they can find them very quickly. So I thought that was a great idea. Yeah. And I think that makes it fun. It also points out, though, too, even if you don't go that far to have more than one person that's checking your cart if you have a large enough staff because you know you don't want the first time that somebody's really looking around in there when somebody's calling them and telling them to grab something in an emergency. Right. Um, so, you know, the more you can have people take part in that, the better off you'll be. Um, so, any, um, now that I've got my peanut gallery around me here, everybody's been uh, quiet. So, uh, um, so I'm just going to go around. I'm, I'm just going to pick on people. Alex, we've already bugged at you for a bit. So, uh, I do have something. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> so, we did have a, on a recent survey, business policies came up. Oh, yeah. And I think this is something that's often forgotten about, um, making sure that centers, even if they outsource their billing, they do need to have business policies that separate duties regarding accounts receivable, accounts payable, um, you know, inventory. Uh, all of those controls need to be in place in in policy, mm-hmm. including cash, uh, how to manage cash payments. Um, you know, even if you don't manage them, you need to have a policy that says that. Right. Or, or that it's the responsibility of the billing company, for example. Exactly. Yeah. I, I, uh, I, I think that the reason that that doesn't come up in surveys a lot is that so many of the surveyors are not business people. And to your point, that, that's what happened is, uh, you know, one of the, the, um, organizations that we're talking about here, the surveyor actually had a bit of a business background and then pointed out that you need to make sure that you have those policies in place. Uh, Judy, you've been very quiet over there. Well, I've been so interested in everything else you guys were saying. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I've been actually really fortunate. I haven't – one of my centers has not had a survey recently. Thank God. And I should knock on something. I was going to say, you better knock on wood. Wait. Yeah, I didn't mean to jinx anybody. I'm really sorry out there if I – blockhead, let me knock. I'll knock on Alex's head. Um, So I I don't have like a a specific scary story to tell about something that happened recently. My last survey was um, out of my own state. I was in Ohio for a survey. Um, and the only thing during that survey that I found interesting, and it was more of a suggestion. We certainly weren't cited. You know, that survey went really well, thank God. Um, but she was looking at our patient satisfaction data, you know, and, and all of us are real. I mean, when it comes to quality improvement and how we write our clients' minutes, I mean, we're very meticulous and, and we try to be, you know, really accurate and, and keep really good records about this. And I'm going through our, our minutes, which John had just mentioned, are long. You, you know, mm-hmm. we, we, we're really detail-oriented, and we're going through it. And, and um, Alex, you know, because he is a genius, has set up our, our spreadsheet so that we get really good um, quantification of this, you know, the percentage of return rate, and then using that return rate percentage to determine our patient satisfaction percentage. And this particular surveyor, and she wasn't anybody I I had worked with before, maybe, you know, because it was a different state. But she said, so are you giving, do you get your patient satisfaction results back from every single patient that you do? And I said, well, no, (laughs) you know, wouldn't that be nice? Mm -hmm. But no. And then she wanted me to give give some thought, and this may not have been the venue to, to open this up to the rest of my colleagues because I haven't had a chance to talk about this. Um, not to set our standards to 100% as if we gave the survey to all of our patients. If you're only giving it to a certain number of patients or it's only going to 10% of your patients, to set up your um, – your formulas so that it's based on that rather than the number of surgeries that have been done there in the quarter. Does that make sense? I'm yeah. looking through the little hole of the computers at Alex's face because <laughs> from where I'm sitting, that's the only person I can see. Um, so if you are struggling with patient satisfaction, and and I know it's possible that, that with a, before long this process may be taken out of our hands, but while we're still working on that, if you're not giving your patient satisfaction survey to every single patient that you see, you know, a lot of my centers, especially my centers, I work with a lot of pain centers. So we have a lot of repeat customers, you know, where we'll have people come in once a week for six months where you're not going to hand it to them every single time they come, you know, um, to change how you set up your quantification to a smaller percentage than the number of total patients they see in a quarter. 
The only concern I have with that, Judy, is that we really should be encouraging the surveys to go out to all the patients. Um, you know, doing a random sample of them probably is not appropriate, but you're right. It is done um, in some cases. In some cases, we can't, um, you know, we can't get the surveys out to everybody. So what Judy is referring to is that uh, we're, we're recording here on uh, July 6th and we're waiting anxiously for the 2022 payment rule to come out from CMS. And there is a, uh, a suspicion that OAS caps will be included in the 2022 payment rule, which will mean that uh, surgery centers will be required to engage a company to do the uh, surveys of all of their patients or a random sample of their patients uh, for the quality of care that was rendered. And unfortunately, as, and we've talked about this in the podcast many times over the last three or four years, um, is that uh, this will take it out of our control. We won't even have control over the types of questions that will be asked uh, in this survey. And then, um, and I believe that one of the most recent renditions of the questions that would be asked under OAS caps uh, have 39 items. Now, I don't know. Anybody have any opinions about uh, how many people will return satisfaction surveys or well, do satisfaction surveys? We've I talked about be. this Several times. Yes. In, and it's been through a whole lot of different iterations. Like, we've been worried about this for years. Correct. Right? It was going to be on, then it wasn't. Then it was going to be on, then it wasn't. And I was hoping that as time went on, they would have lessened that, you know, that it wouldn't have been such a long survey, that it didn't have to be all completely right. computer generated because you're going to lose half your audience right there. Yeah. You know, the the older generation of us or, or, or even – I shouldn't say it that way. That's – there are people that will not go on to the computer to answer these. Right. And or, let alone – Or answer a phone call. Or, or answer a phone call. Yeah. Or go through that many questions. <laughs> right. And you, you know, know the ones that will are the ones that are – the are, ones that are going to have something nasty to say. Yeah, yeah. the people that are angry. Like, get you know, so I question the whole concept of it. I have for years. I know it's not up to me, so it doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> well, it, we know it's going to happen. It's just a matter of when. It's not if. It's going to be a matter of when. And we can have a whole podcast once we find out because yeah. we'll need at least that. Yeah. And, and of course, uh, then, then we're going to be having to work on – because the whole goal of this Medicare uh, OAS CAPS program is to eventually transition into a pay-for-performance for, for or pay-for-quality uh, model where your score will actually determine how much you get paid for it. So that we have to take this seriously and we have to be prepared for the consequences of uh, of the this type of a program being implemented in our center. But more information to come. And Sue, you and I will have a, a special podcast when that uh, rule does come out. Yeah. And um, as long as our clients know we are going to be here to help them through it, you know, right. as daunting as it's going to seem when it first comes out. Right. And no. through the podcast, of course. Yeah, we're we'll going to try to be as helpful as we can. Uh, while I have you, uh, Judy, can you tell us a little bit about what's going on with um, the uh, educational programs now? Because that's another area that, as Lori will say, we've – it's not so much, I mean, our clients, of course, because you do a wonderful job of developing uh, educational programs for, uh, for our clients. But, uh, Lori and I, uh, when we go out and do surveys for the accreditation organizations, that's one of our challenges lately is seeing and, um, the educational program, seeing documentation of the educational program. So can you just kind of give some suggestions as to how best to develop a good orientation and annual mandatory program and how best to present it on an annual basis? Yeah, well, for those people that you know that are that are listeners, and we're happy to have you, but they're not clients of ours. Like, I, we really do everything in our power to make sure that each of our centers has everything they need in a very concise way, presented um, in a quality way, and documented well. And we do that for them. But if you don't have someone like us that us like helps you with that, what you're going to have to do first of all is. You know what our CMS regulations are. You know that there are mandatories that are necessary every year and have been for, you know, a millennium. Uh, OSHA safety and, and bloodborne pathogens. And, but you're also going to have to look at your local regulations to see, um, for instance, here in New York, if, if you're not from New York, a new training had to be developed and added to, to the annual mandatories for tuberculosis training. They changed the mandates for testing, um, so that you could, you know, people in our state could do a, um, a self-risk assessment and then be educated on tuberculosis in order to forego that very painful and somewhat irritating skin test. Um, so now that was added to a mandatory that's due for people in New York. Well, if you're from New York, there's a hint for you right there. And even if you're not, you need to check your own local and, and state regulations for what your people need to have. And you should have somebody on that to do that research and make sure that you have everything they need. Sexual harassment was added to almost every state in the union just last year. I, I guess it was the year before COVID. I keep erasing that whole year in between. Yeah. Um, 
uh, sexual harassment and human trafficking and things change. Um, so you really have to keep up on making sure that um, everybody has what they need. Now, you, we do it in, in a, you know, a binder form on paper. We also present it um, in person when I get the chance. And, and now that I can travel again, that, that's become a little bit easier. Um, and we can do it um, simulated, you know, via the computer. However you choose to do it, whether you do it for your whole staff all at once, you know, on a, on a Saturday morning and get it done, or, or even if you do it piecemeal, like you're going to do one piece a month of that annual, annual mandatory education, you need to have really meticulous records about who has had what and how right. often it's been and find a way, at, you know, whether it's a spreadsheet or, or a dashboard of some kind so that you can keep track of who's had it and who's fallen behind. Um, and some things that even the centers I work with forget is that, that the binder I make for them or the videotape I've made for them has to be shown immediately or within 30 days of people that come on brand new. You right. can't just decide, oh, we're going to do mandatories in June, so I'll just let them slide till then. No. Even if they're hired in May and they sit through that book, they can sit through it again in June. Right. Um, and that is even for our own clients. I, I know that sometimes that's a, a fall through the cracks kind of thing. Your annual mandatory education has got to be the same as your um, bring on a, a new higher education. I think I walked around. I mean, I, I transgressed through a whole circle there. But those are the things that, that I work on most with the clients I work with is make sure that you get people as soon as um, before they've hit 30 days and keep track. I mean, go to your Department of Health website and there's one for every state naturally, but there's also one for every county. So check those. Look at those. I look at it for the counties we work with to see if there's things I need to change or if there's new stuff I can create for the people I work with. A couple of takeaways from that, uh, Judy. First of all, uh, you mentioned uh, making uh, keeping meticulous records. So, just maintaining a binder with all the educational programs is not enough. You need to document in the employee's file uh, all the programs that they've had in order to be able to prove that every employee has at least gone through that training program. Mm -hmm. Not only had it made available to them, but actually took it. Because if somebody is absent on the day that you do all the annual mandatory training, you still have to give them that annual mandatory training. Good point. And uh, let's make a suggestion out of this. Is, as you mentioned, uh, if you're doing an annual mandatory training, like you uh, set aside a day and then you sit them down for you know four or five hours to go through all the mandatory, record it. You know, pull out your iPhone, uh, turn the camera on, and uh, aim it at the uh, the speaker, and uh, and take a make a recording of this and make that available to all of your employees uh, for their orientation or the the annual mandatory education, so that uh, you you save yourself a little bit of time there and have yeah, available a, that information. I mean, it's, that's a wonderful that's a great suggestion because like it's not going to be like the ones we tape here for our clients, right? But you're going to be so happy you did it. If next month you hire four new people and right. all you have to do is sit them in front of that, that's a that's a great idea. And, and another uh, pet peeve that uh, we all have here is that these organizations <laughs> that that use these online uh, educational programs, keep in mind that can only probably take care of about a third maybe of all the orientation and annual mandatory education programs that you have. You have to train them on things that are very specific to that organization, your transfer policy, your infection control program, your peer review program, all of those things are required. And uh, you're not going to be able to do that or or you can have to spend a lot of time uh, uploading that information to be able to do it online. Uh, so just keep in mind that uh, getting uh, you know, signing up for one of these online services is not going to give you all of the uh, training that you need to do on an annual basis or for orientation. Lori, I'm going to look at you. Can I talk a little bit about some uh, recent experiences that you've uh, had? Uh, luckily, I haven't performed a survey in a bit. However, um, just remember that, you know, your surveyors are, are watching and listening at, for anything and everything. Yeah. Oh, so um, I think my biggest takeaway to everybody is just to make sure, uh, you know, your leadership as well as your staff are familiar with your policies and procedures. Because if a surveyor sees something that might not jive with what they think, and then they look at your policy and procedure and notice that the, um, the way it was performed by the um, employee does not correspond with the policy and procedure, yeah. you know, you're caught with your pants down. So that to me is, is really very important. Um, just, you know, your, your annual review really should be a continuous review, not just once a year. Um, and obviously that falls mostly to the um, nurse manager or administrator to uh, keep up with that. But 
share it with your staff, have them go through the policy, especially in specific areas that they work to see if what they do matches the policy or perhaps the policy needs has an opportunity to be updated to the best practices that maybe the staff are performing. Right. Okay. Um, and now I, we have two of our consultants uh, here who uh, kind of uh, pull together information and put together our uh, minutes, prepare our senior consultants for the minutes. Um, uh, Amy, I'm going to start with you. Uh, what has been some of your biggest challenges over the last couple months here as you've been doing uh, some of the, the gathering information? Uh, Amy, by the way, also does our office-based surgery uh, practice stuff. So want to give us a little observation of some of the challenges you've had recently and some of the changes. I think some of the challenges is just trying to compile all the information because mm -hmm. there's so many things that we look at and so many things that are important to doing quality work in an ASC or in an OBS. Yeah. So trying to get all that together. And one thing that was brought up recently was any forms that you have, making sure that all the blanks are filled out on your forms. Yeah, and if point. it's not applicable, remove it from your form because if it's there, it needs to be filled out. Yeah, that's a very good point is that um, – and that happens a lot when we pull in – um, uh, medical record consultants. And, and by the way, uh, Sue and I, when we're dealing with legal documents too and, and uh, working with lawyers because uh, definitely um, they, they don't like a blank. And that if, you, if they find a, a blank on a form, they assume that you forgot to fill it out rather than it was not applicable. So definitely look through all those forms and remove anything that, uh, that you're not filling out on a regular basis. So, Lori, you're one of our uh, newest employees, and uh, you have be quickly become our credentialing <laughs> guru. I don't think anybody ever wants to be a credentialing guru. Uh, they don't. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought I'd have you talk a little bit about some of the challenges. I, but, okay, so let me ask a sarcastic question. Um, uh, how easy is it to credential somebody? <laughs> it's not difficult to credential. True, true. It's long. Right. Yeah, and it's very tedious work, too, because there's tedious. a lot of – got to be very detail-oriented. So I think one of the you – know, first of all, as a company, we never really got involved in credentialing until recently. It's really post-pandemic when so many issues have been popping up and so many people have been having real challenges and keeping up to date on this. And I think also the uh, – I think all of us can, can agree that post-pandemic staffing has been a major issue, getting people back to work. Uh, getting people to uh, do these more clerical tasks even because those individuals are the hardest to get back to work right now, right. Uh, even more so than nurses. Uh, so people are working on a very limited staff. So so you've been spending a lot of time gathering information and pulling it together. And you made a comment to me earlier about how many, like after, after you reach a certain number of doctors, this is literally a full-time job. What, what are your thoughts on that? I would say anything over 10 or 12 doctors, it becomes a full-time job. Yeah, because of all the tracking and trending that all you have to do. All the tracking and training you have to yeah. do. They don't all credential at the same time. Right. They're, they're, the reappointments are, are all different. Yeah. So there's a lot of information together with that stuff. So then it becomes difficult. And, and let's make it clear. When you're saying it's a full-time job, it's something that somebody has to be assigned to do this all the time. It might not be eight hours a day, especially when it's at, you know, like maybe 10 people. But once you get to 50 or 60 people, that is a full-time job. That is definitely right a full-time full job. That becomes a full-time job for someone. Yeah. And, and I, I think another point that I want to make, too, is that, um, you know, again, your task is largely clerical. Um, right. And in the surgery center, it's not necessary for the administrator, the nurse manager to do what you're doing, which is pulling together all this right. information. But somebody, of somebody course, has, can do it. Yeah, somebody yeah. can do it. And then somebody else has to manage that data afterwards. I'm sorry, look at that data afterwards. Because and it, I'd say even in the smallest organizations, you got to have two people involved because you got to have somebody checking the work. Right. So even if you are in a small center and you're the administrator or the nurse manager doing it, have somebody else double check to make sure you're keeping up to date with right. all that. Or, of course, hire a company like ours to do that for you. But, <laughs> uh, yes. And so what has been – I'm kind of curious. What's been the most difficult thing to uh, to get your hands around when it comes to credentialing? I always love giving um, trick questions. I, I well, I get frustrated because I can't look up everything. Because yeah. for me, if I'm in it and I'm doing it, I wish I could just, just finish do it. it. Yeah, yeah. So that gets to be um, that's just personal for me, though. Yeah. Uh, the the credentialing, um, organizing it. Yeah. Um, when you're when you're at a center and you're scanning the stuff 
it's probably not in the order that you would like it to be. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and organization is the key. I, Laurie and I will attest to that. I did a survey recently. Um, I'm not going to mention the state, but I did a survey recently where they literally just took all the paper and then shoved it into a folder. It was that, no organization That seems all. to be, and, and I assume that all the current information yeah, would is be on the, the top of the pile, yeah. and that isn't necessarily how it is. Yeah. So a couple points to make here. First of all, Laura, you are very detail-oriented. You're you know, very uh, well-organized and one of the reasons that you're doing so well at it is because of that organization and because you're detail-oriented. So you do not assign somebody like me to organize this because I cannot be detail-oriented. I wouldn't have the, I would get so frustrated doing it. But that's an important point is that sometimes it is the administrator, you know, who's doing that. And if they don't have that um Well, and know, if they don't attitude, have time. And if they don't have the time. Because I think credentialing maybe isn't as much a priority as maybe it should be. Right. Because you're going to get, you know, you're going to let people expire. Right. But it's just easier to throw it in a file. Yeah. So please, for the sake of uh, Lori and myself, if we're your surveyors, make sure that you organize it well. Uh, and, you know, we have been computerizing. Now, when we say computerizing, we're not necessarily using a, uh, well, we're not using a computer program that stores all this. We're just putting it into a folder uh, on the computer. And that is a really good idea now because you'll never lose that data as long as you're backing it up. And this isn't just for surveys. I don't know. Do we want to, without mentioning the center, tell about um, the big save? You did with the finding that? Oh, yeah. Well, that was with employee files and organizing yeah. employee files. Um, we found an employee who presented themselves as a nurse. Yeah. And actually wasn't a nurse by by me checking the license verification. Yeah, that was shocking. Yeah. I, and that's the first time that's ever happened in my time. Uh, that uh, um, So in this situation... But what, you hear these horror stories yeah. about doctors doing the same thing. So it, yeah. it is important. It isn't just paperwork and shuffling things around. So what we're referring to, and I, we might have mentioned this before, I can't remember, but the uh, is that uh, Laura discovered that uh, a person who put themselves out to be a registered nurse um, had actually falsified their license. license. And then when you did a double check, when you did mm -hmm. the online verification at the state, uh, the person popped up with an expired license and a different name. Yeah, different, yeah. So not only – so they were really terrible at falsifying the information. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And I might, good looking. I might be – I might over – I might overstep what I do. Yeah. But when I'm doing the credentialing and they may have a copy of the license verification – but I always check it anyway yeah. and put a current one in, even if it's only a month or two old, just because just I check. found that. And and fortunately, in this particular place, that, that uh, nurse was not actually acting as a nurse. Yeah. Um, and there was no harm. But can you imagine a scenario in which they were actually providing mm -hmm. direct patient care? Yeah, that something legal? Yeah. So a uh, great, great save there, Laura. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Okay, let's take a short break, and we're going to come back, and we're going to uh, go over some of the challenges for uh, surgery center leadership and keeping up to date because God knows it is a very difficult job right now. So uh, let's take a short break. Thank you for being a loyal listener of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey. But did you know that you can enhance your experience and support the free podcast by becoming a patron member? Patron members have access to ASC Central, an add-on service at a very reasonable price. Patron members have access to our regular drop-in virtual meetings where you can discuss issues that you are dealing with in your ambulatory surgery center with the hosts and other members. Members also have access to valuable member resources, including a, a document library with a growing list of resources, including the rules and regulations, guides to maintaining compliance, example policies and procedures, infection control resources, example risk assessments, example committee and governing body minutes, and over 60 disaster drill scenario kits and example forms and checklists. 
Members also have access to some of the virtual conferences that we have presented, including the Provider Credentialing Conference, which we offered in December 2020. It's a New World Conference in 2020. Infection Control in-service to meet the challenges of COVID-19 and the ASC Mandatory Education Program, which is a valuable resource for annual education for your staff. Membership helps to defray the cost of producing the podcast, including the research staff, travel costs to conferences, equipment costs, and production costs. For more information, you may visit ASCPodcast.com. To become a member, visit ASCPodcast.com. So we wanted to talk about some of the um, challenges for administrators on keeping up to date and the types of things you need to keep track of to be an administrator or a nurse manager. So I'll list some of these, and John will expand, or anybody else anybody who else wants, wants to talk more about it. Um, so first, and very important, are the conditions for coverage. So as we know, these are the Medicare conditions for coverage, which are the regulations, the high-level regulations that an amateur surgery center must meet. We've talked about it a lot during the podcast over the last four years um, and keeping up to date on. Now, they haven't been updated since before the pandemic, so uh, keep in mind that uh, uh, we're probably due so for some big changes here. But, mm-hmm. uh, but to that end, of course, uh, Sue, understanding the conditions for coverage is not enough, right? So our second item mm-hmm. is? The interpretive guidelines, which as it sounds, kind of interpret that and explain it a little bit more in depth. Right. So the interpretive guidelines are those instructions that are provided to surveyors. Uh, people like Lori and myself, when we go out on a survey, we, we carry along a copy of our interpreter, our trusty old uh, interpretive guidelines, and these are what we use uh, to help us determine whether an organization is in compliance with the interpretive guidelines. And we'll provide a link to uh, both the conditions for coverage and the interpretive guidelines here. But it is really critical that you stay on top of it. And uh, a little uh, bit of a push here. Of course, I wrote a book a number of years ago on 2020, actually, just a year ago, called the Survey Guide, which is available uh, through AAC Podcast website. And that's kind of an easy way of seeing the conditions for coverage, the interpretive guidelines, and and the various policies and memos. Mm -hmm. Uh, And speaking of which, Sue? So these are the policy and and memos to states and regions that you want to keep track of. CMS Quality, Safety, and Oversight Memoranda, Guidance, Clarifications, and Instructions to State Survey Agencies and CMS regional offices. So the the interpretive guidelines are not updated frequently. They're updated maybe every couple of years, but the policy and memos section, which is again, we'll send we'll put a link to it on the uh, on the, uh, the the podcast website here, um, is the instructions that are provided in an interim basis. So during the, I, I don't think I've ever seen as many policy and memos issued as we did during the, the pandemic. Sometimes, you know, two or three times a day, as a matter of fact, during the, the height of the pandemic, we would be getting policy and memos out there. So these are meant to provide guidance to clarify, shall we say, the interpretive guidelines, which, of course, clarify the conditions for coverage. So it is important that you – so, again, this is like a triumvirate here, keeping up to date with the conditions for coverage, the interpretive guidelines, and all the policies and memos. And all of this information is provided by CMS on the CMS website. And, of course, your state licensure information, if your state ha- um, requires that. And virtually all states in the United States do require some form of licensure. Um, I'm going to open it up to uh, – because all of the, the people in this room have clients in different states. Any comments about some of the challenges we have in finding those regulations? Pennsylvania makes it pretty hard, but more importantly, Pennsylvania is very quite, quite a bit from other states. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a very good point. Like in Pennsylvania, before you add a new service, for example, you actually have to get approval from the state. Most uh, most states don't require that level. Actually, I don't know of any other state other than Pennsylvania that does that. But that brings up a very important point is that if all you're doing is following the conditions for coverage, the interpretive guidelines, you could get still get into a lot of trouble by not following those state regs. Exactly. Sue, uh, you, you keep on top of what's going on in Ohio. And uh, unfortunately, Judy had to leave. She's also in Ohio. Mm-hmm. But um, those regs are, are different. They're a little bit more more up-to-date in Ohio than they are in, uh, in in some other states. But some of the challenges that uh, we run into there are really uh, the frequency of the surveys there. Uh, the uh, very, few, uh, very few surgery centers in the state of Ohio actually are deemed status because the state's going to come out and do a state licensure survey anyway. So again, keep on top of what's going on in your state. Um, and if you are a member of the podcast, uh, we do have links to the uh, state uh, regulations right on the website. And then the accreditation standards. So Lori, how many times have you done a survey and somebody has said to you, 
that they have not actually read the con- accreditation standards? I don't ask that question anymore. <laughs> Smart move. <laughs> what I do is I ask them if they have a, a recent copy of yeah. the standards book. Right. Because then I know at least they've attempted. Yeah. Um, you know, but, uh, you know, unfortunately, sometimes they look at you like, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. And, you know, does it mean they didn't read it? Not necessarily. It's just, you know, it's a, it's a big book. Yeah, I so ran into a situation you, recently where the, uh, the governance uh, chapter was a complete disaster in this particular organization that I was surveying. And, you know, they said, how would I, how would I know that I have to do all these things? Their minutes were like uh, half a page long. And uh, I said, well, this is an open book test. Uh, we told you all the things we expect to see in those minutes. Here's that list. And uh, you probably should have read that beforehand. So please, please, for the sake of the surveyors and for the sake of your, your sanity, uh, do read through the uh, accreditation standards, keep up to date with what's going on in the accreditation standards. And each of the accreditation organization also does training programs uh, for people to keep them up to date with what's going on. A lot of them are virtual now, of course, but but if you're if you are going to be accredited or if you're deemed status, you need to follow the accreditation standards. And Alex, life safety requirements. You this know is so about easy. Those. This is so easy, though. There's <laughs> nothing to keep up to date in life safety, right, Alex? Oh yeah, these are these are very simple. <laughs> Cheap to sarcasm, too, right? sarcasm, right? <laughs> Actually, so NFPA has just created a kind of cool new system, which I'm just starting to try out. Where if you pay a subscription fee, you can now search their codes online. Um, and this is an upgrade over previous free edition online where you couldn't search, you can't actually like copy anything, you can't select anything. You literally have to read through each of the sections to find. Yeah, and if you want to take some of the code out of the book and show somebody else, you have to take a picture. <laughs> of the screen. <laughs> yeah, talk so, about antiquated. <laughs> yeah, so this is, this is a huge um, step forward. But of yeah, course it does cost money, but it it's not It does cost lot. money, yeah. But it's not as much as buying the 100 or $200 book, yeah. depending on which book you're looking at. So, I think it was $9.99 a month, right? And, it, and you only pay monthly? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So not, not too bad. Yeah. And, and that's $9.99. Oh, right. Good point. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering why you're laughing there, yeah. <laughs> I know places Just that probably clear. would pay the $999. <laughs> Um, but the, the most important ones are NFPA 101, which really drives the code set uh, for ASCs, and then, and then NFPA 99, which is the, uh, the other major piece of the puzzle, which got adopted as a code about five years back now. So those are the two big ones, and then everything comes off of those. So those will refer to other codes and refer to themselves and... Got it. It's just so much fun just, yeah. just going through the circles that NFPA creates, yeah. and I, I just enjoy it. That's that's how I spend my time. Yes, yeah. the only person in the company that will say that. So, so the, the, except maybe Jim Masters, who was our, uh, our our resident surveyor. But yeah, I mean, I I find, and I used to be a a surveyor for life safety back in, when they allowed you know health surveyors to do it. But I don't know. I mean, I, I obviously wasn't very good at it um, because staying on top of the NFEI standards and understanding them and reading through them is not a, an easy task. And and I, I got to say, the average nurse, the average administrator, is just not going to have the time to go through that detail. So you really need to have somebody on board that can help you. Absolutely. And the OSHA guidelines, the OSHA.gov website is a good place to look at those um, general standards and the bloodborne pathogens. So important thing, we, we all remember that we have to follow the, the bloodborne pathogen standards, and uh, but sometimes we forget about the general standards, and the general standards section is uh, all other risks, you know, risk of falling, risk of fire, risk of uh, ergonomic controls, in other words, lifting something that you uh, shouldn't be uh, lifting or, or lifting it in a proper way so you don't injure your back. So uh, keeping on top of the OSHA guidelines, the challenge or the issue with OSHA 
is that if a surveyor comes out and finds something wrong, or if you have a workplace injury uh, that results in an OSHA payout, you're likely to find OSHA showing up on your doorstep. Mm-hmm. And unlike uh, CMS surveys and accreditation surveys, where um, uh, you could, uh, you're you're not likely to be fined, or you're not going to be fined. OSHA does levy fines, and they lo- they levy very significant fines. And I think during the pandemic, we found OSHA is a lot more involved, and we know that they are issuing some new standards out there. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the uh, the new OSHA. Uh, guidelines that came out that really are not applicable to surgery centers, but we have to stay on top of all this information so that we can uh, can be current. So uh, keeping on top of OSHA, um, uh, we're going to mention uh, in our third segment here an upcoming conference, uh, which is free for uh, people to get uh, information directly from OSHA on how to stay compliant with it. And again, if you're using N95 masks, don't forget about your um, respiratory protection program, the fit testing, and the uh, health assessment. So any uh, suggestions uh, everybody has? All of us in the company, of course, are, are tasked with keeping on top of the uh, the regulations. Um, wh- any suggestion? I mean, obviously, one suggestion I have is listen to the podcast regularly because uh, all of us on uh, on the podcast and with Amateur Healthcare Strategy spend a great deal of time uh, trying to, uh, to keep up with the regulations. But any other suggestions on how to keep up with things? Checklists. Make lots and lots <laughs> of checklists. <laughs> Yeah, and going to your uh, conferences, state conferences. Yeah. Making sure you have a budget for those conferences mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. your uh, your owners are willing to pay the money to, uh, mm-hmm. uh, to to help you attend them. Yeah, and becoming members of your state associations. Yeah. And as well as the national association. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's not an either-or situation anymore. You really have to be a member of both the national association as well as your state association mm-hmm. if your state has one. Yeah. And just monitoring some of these websites, like we said with the OSHA one. Yeah. Um, you know, periodically checking those things. Yeah, and you also might want to consider, depending on your specialty, being a member of that specialty association. Mm. That's a good um, point. Because they can be sometimes your first line of communication when something comes up. And, and I'll use um, AORN as a, an example, because just last week they sent out a blast to all their members regarding uh, recalls. Yeah. So, you know, you can be informed too many times on certain things that you should be aware of. And even if it doesn't apply to you, but still, you know, that's just one example. Another good example, uh, Lori, uh, is SGNA, uh, the Society for uh, Gastroenterology Nurses. Uh, they publish a lot of standards, information that's very helpful to the industry. So if you're if you're a GI center and you're not a member of SGNA, uh, that's a real serious mistake. You really have to keep up to date on that. Yeah, and if, if you do um, ophthalmic surgery, the ASORN is a great association as right. well. And there's probably one for pain management that I don't know of. Yeah. So feel free, people out there, to enlighten me on things <laughs> I don't know Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And now that we're starting to get back to in-person conferences, uh, I don't, I mean, I, you know, of course we do a lot of virtual conferences at the podcast here and I, I encourage you to obviously do that. We have a lot of fun doing those. Uh, but uh, there's nothing like an in-person conference where you can hobnob with uh, the speakers, where you can, uh, you know, meet other uh, people that you might be able to use as fellow journeyers in the uh, battle to stay on top of things. And, uh, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, a lot of us have uh, uh, found over the years that those contacts are extremely valuable in trying to keep up to date with things. Mm-hmm. So, again, one of the reasons that we've been doing this podcast for the last four years is because we really feel that this resource, which, of course, is free, uh, is a good way for you to keep on top of things. And the staff edition, of course, has become very popular also at providing a resource for your, your staff to stay up to date with um, you know things that are pertinent to them. You can use them as staff-in services. So uh, we continue to be dedicated to providing you up-to-date information about the industry, uh, about the regulations, about changes that are occurring, and of course, keeping you up-to-date on, on survey trends so that you know and are prepared for what happens in, the, in your upcoming surveys. Okay, let's take a short break and we'll come back and we'll talk about uh, upcoming events in the ASC industry. In this section, we discuss other learning opportunities in the ASC industry. If you'd like your event to be included in the podcast, please send the in- event information to info at ASCPodcast.com. 
And one of those emails that we got this last week was from Marcy Sasso, who gave us, as I mentioned earlier in the uh, the podcast, uh, information about the uh, an upcoming special day of education featuring OSHA's new guidelines. Uh, this is sponsored by Sasso Consulting, and you can join them for this free virtual day of learning with the national guest speakers from OSHA and other industry leaders. It's on July 14th, 2021, from 9.30 a.m. to 3.30 p.m., and we'll provide a link in the uh, podcast notes. And Lori, we have an upcoming event in uh, July uh, that you're working very hard on right now. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your uh, infection control conferences coming up? We, we're actually going to present a, a conference um, in two days. The first day will be technically 101, um, and the second day will be 201. And what we're going to talk about is, you know, just kind of the role of the infection preventionists and also creating an infection prevention uh, training program that, you know, everyone is required to have. Um, and we'll talk about national guidelines. We'll talk about sterilization issues, um, environment of care, possibly doing a um, post-op infection walkthrough, how to, how to deal with that. So a lot of interesting things, hopefully, that will help any of you out there that either are uh, overseeing the infection prevention of your centers or your um, infection preventionists um, will have an opportunity. And, and we're also going to be able to offer credits for this towards their um, CAPE certification uh, if they have it or if they're thinking of doing it. This also helps address some of the items that are on the exam. I think. Right. And uh, so this is an update to uh, the, the April 2020 program that you and I did during the heart of the pandemic. Uh, it was one of the first conferences that the SC podcast did. Uh, and uh, the wonderful thing about these programs is it will help to demonstrate to CMS and the accreditation organizations that uh, your infection control coordinator has been properly trained and has stayed up to date on this, the standards. So this is uh, Infection Control 101 is going to be July 23rd, 2021. And uh, Infection Control 201 uh, is going to be the following Monday on uh, July 26th. And for more information, visit the ASC Podcast website at ASCPodcast.com. The Florida Society of Ambulatory Surgical Centers Annual Conference and Trade Show is July 14th through 16th, 2021 at the Hilton Orlando Bonnet Creek in Orlando. A-O-R-N Expo 2021, August 7th through 10th. 2021 Orange County Convention Center in Orlando, Florida. The California Ambulatory Surgery Association's 2021 Annual Meeting, September 8th to 10th, 2021, at the Hyatt Regency Huntington Beach Resort and Spa in Huntington Beach, California. The Illinois Ambulatory Surgery Center Association's Annual Meeting on September 22nd, 2021 at Sheraton Lyle, Naperville Hotel in Lyle, Illinois. I just want to say it's so great, Sue, to have other voices here doing this. Uh, though I, All I'm doing is I'm pointing to them and they're saying, what the heck is going on here? <laughs> Especially when they don't have the script in front of them. Uh, the Ohio ASC Association's conference will be at the Hilton Columbus Polaris in, on September 27th and 28th. And they will host a two-day event featuring uh, an exhibit hall and two full days of education. And I am honored to be their keynote speaker. The New York State Association of Ambulatory Surgical Centers is live and in person for the Roaring Twenties Conference that will, will be held at the Sleepy Hollow Hotel and Conference Center in Terrytown, New York. For more information, visit nysask.org. That's N-Y-S-A-A-S-C dot org. And that is taking place on September 29th. And 30th. And Alex, you've been very modest here because you, of course, are very much involved in putting together a program for that in association with the, the education committee. So thank you for your, your hard work on that. And you've been putting together those conferences for years now, haven't you? Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of surprising. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you're, you're never going to be able to escape it. Sorry. It's a, it's a new rule. The Washington Ambulatory Surgery Center Association Annual Education Conference and Trade Show will be held November 4th and 5th, 2021 at the Tulalip Resort and Spa in Tulalip, Washington. And last but not least, the Pennsylvania Ambulatory Surgery Association's annual meeting, November 8, 2021, 
at the Hershey Lodge in Hershey, Pennsylvania. And everybody loves that Hershey Lodge, what? don't they? Upon checking, you get a Hershey bar. It's uh, <laughs> except if you're on keto, That's it's not so good. Go. <laughs> That's reason enough. Right? Great reason to go. <laughs> we do want to remind everyone to become a patron member of the podcast. The patron member program, also known as ASC Central, is an exclusive membership website that provides a one-stop ASC regulatory and accreditation compliance operations and financial management resource for busy administrators, nurse managers, and business office managers. Resources include some virtual conferences, links, policies and procedures, forms, drills, discounts and services, and books and access to AEU credits, as well as our wonderful weekly check-in or drop-in sessions where we uh, uh, we talk to uh, members uh, for about an hour every week. Mm-hmm. It, uh, it's been uh, a lot of fun doing that. Well, that's it for this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey. Join us again. Please consider becoming a patron by going to our website at ASCPodcast.com and spread the word about our podcast with your friends and colleagues and do us the honor of hitting the subscribe button. The sound editor for this episode is Susan Cronkite. Executive producer is John Gailey. Research assistance is provided by Susan Cronkite, Jenna Alvarez, Judy D'Ambrosio, Alex Borneman, Zach Caloritis, Amy Dirbano, and Lori Rodericks. Music is provided by Media Sushi and Mike Noah. The ASC Podcast with John Gailey is hosted on Podbean and is available on all major podcast channels. We would like to thank our sponsors, Surgical Information Systems, providing cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers and ambulatory healthcare strategies, the nation's leading regulatory compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about our sponsors, visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. This podcast has been an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as nor does it constitute legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved. If you're interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ASCPodcast.com. We would love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at ASCPodcast.com.